Hey there. Welcome to the Geography of Everything, the podcast where we try to figure out the geography of, well, everything. I'm your host, Ronnie Ravid. And I'm your producer, Zena Heilinga. It seems that over the last 10 years, the concept of artificial intelligence has invaded every part of our lives. From social media algorithms to life-saving medical technologies, the potential of AI to revolutionize and disrupt our society is immense. But if you're like me, perhaps the first thing you think about when you hear artificial intelligence are sci-fi movies like The Terminator or Ex Machina, which turns out is still quite far from where AI is today. To learn more about this topic, where we stand, and where we're headed, we invited Dr. Pierre-Alexander Balland, Associate Professor of Economic Geography at Utrecht University. Pierre-Alexander specializes in the geography of complex knowledge and technologies, including AI. During this episode, we learned about the pros, the cons, the winners and the losers of this technological revolution, and considered the role geography plays within it all. So we wanted to start off with just getting to know a little bit about you, maybe how you got into this field, what your background is in, and maybe what do you find interesting about it? Yeah, no, thanks a lot for having me. It's a really a fantastic initiative. Um, first of all, I think it's really hard not to get excited and interested in AI. When you have some of this uh, type of uh, technological revolution, you want to be in, you want to be building into it, you want to understand it, you want to do research on it. So uh, the reason why I got into it, the first one, is because it has so many implications on you know, the economy, on society, uh, on, on our life, you know, on everybody's life. But the reason why I'd be able to do research about it is because my research uh, during my PhD thesis was on a very adjacent field, which is network science, and a lot of modern uh, recommendation system actually build on something we call graph-based machine learning, which is related to the field I applied during my PhD, which is network science. Amazing. So it seems that, especially in these last sort of five years, we hear the words AI everywhere. And to me, those are just two words that are together with meaning, but I don't really understand what artificial intelligence means. <laughs> yeah, yeah you're, you're not the only one, but you're, you're one of the only one to admit it. Uh, a lot of people actually use this term and kind of hype into it uh, in different circles, huh? not only uh, among like uh, the average citizen, but also among people that make decisions, uh, actually don't fully understand uh, what what AI is and what AI is not. And I believe part of the confusion is what we've been uh, served, like in the in the movies, in books, uh, is like this kind of uh, AI that looks like a human and can do anything a human can do, uh, which is something we call general artificial intelligence. And this is not where we are. So the, the AI you see in the movies is not the AI that is actually disrupting the economy. But there is still an AI revolution happening. And I'm happy to talk more about that if you want. Like, what is this AI revolution? Um, but the AI revolution is actually all about uh, these recommender systems that basically help you 
to decide what to buy, what to watch, what to listen to. So they solve a kind of filtering problem because there is so much information out there that eventually you're not going to listen to all the 82 million soundtrack on Spotify before deciding which one to listen to. So this AI is kind of filtering information and based on your own previous um, listening experience and what other people are listening, making sweet recommendations for you to just give you uh, the best matches. And one thing I want to say about the, this AI revolution is that the most valuable companies in the world today actually use artificial intelligence from like medical science to self-driving cars. It's absolutely incredible. The more you dig into it, the rabbit hole, the more you dig into it, the more you realize that this is really changing the world. Maybe this is a bit of a silly question. How intelligent are these AI machines? Because I think about AI and I get into this sort of very 1990s singularity. We're going to be run by robots. But I don't think that we're there. It seems like right now I'm just being recommended different ads. You're absolutely right. It's at the same time incredibly powerful and incredibly, you know, deceiving um, because you, you're absolutely right. I like what you said. So how intelligent machines actually are, I would say the use of intelligence is actually a really bad word because uh, intelligence, it comes from Latin, it means interligere, so unwinding. So you have like links and it means like taking away these links, which truly means understanding understanding what's going on. So the true etymological roots of intelligence is understanding. And one thing I can tell you about today's AI is that today's AI is not understanding anything. Today's AI is a, it's all about being a prediction machine. So today's AI is really, really, really good at making predictions in an automated way, but extremely bad at understanding how these predictions are made. All right. So it seems like I could see a lot of uses for this prediction machine. Just, you know, scrolling through Instagram, it seems like I'm constantly being suggested things and recommended things. So does this really have the potential to shape our behavior? Oh, it's not even talking about potential. It's already shaping your behavior without you knowing. Um, so it's actually just to give you one example, but there's so many. Uh, and one that's pretty worrying is uh, the concept of echo chamber. So one thing about these uh, algorithms is that uh, they are on social media. The whole point of this algorithm is to avoid you to churn, to switch to another website. So they want to optimize and maximize the amount of time you spend on Spotify, Netflix, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. And how do they do that? They serve you exactly what you like. So imagine you're a huge Donald Trump fan and you really like Donald Trump stories. Then the algorithm is just going to feed you more and more of Donald Trump stories and maybe less of Elizabeth Warren stories. So that means it will basically confirm your existing bias because you're never exposed to another point of view because the algorithm's agenda is to serve you what you already like. And that creates an immense polarization in society. And that's the concept in AI that we call echo chamber. So is that shaping your behavior? Yes, it's already shaping your behavior, whether you want it or not. And that's creating this, this mass polarization. Um, and, and that goes beyond, you know, shopping and, and, and other things like that. It's really, truly about your own belief are completely being shaped by, you know, what, you, what you're being served. Yeah, that's terrifying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, speaking, I think, on behalf of the public, I don't think that 
that's necessarily something that we will see the full implications of even in the next few years. I think we're going to see this play out over the next couple of generations, exactly what this means for us. But another aspect of AI that we seem to be constantly hearing about is its development. It's like these companies are constantly trying to compete to make the better algorithm, the more intelligent machine, the more this. And it's almost like a new space race. Is that a wrong assumption? No, it's again, it's, uh, you know, you, you started the podcast saying you don't know much about it, but I, I start to believe that this is not true uh, <laughs> because these are all excellent points. And I really, really uh, do believe that this is the new space race. Uh, every country in the world has its own AI strategy. Uh, it's one of the main uh, top three technologies that China is invested in. Uh, the last state council plan uh, had the direct ambition to be the absolute leader in AI by 2030. Um, uh, China is investing just in 2020, investing 9 billion into that. And that's the, the, the biggest investment in the world. And every country has its own AI strategy. Um, why? Because, you know, you want to be in command. Imagine it's a prediction machine and it has like hundred and maybe thousand of use cases, but also military use cases, flying drones, uh, you know, like uh, robots that can, that can fight by themselves with like, of course, superhuman powers. Um, it's, it's absolutely, uh, you know, like think about Google, think about Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft, Alibaba, Tencent, Beidou, the top AI giants, basically, you know, they, they have a very, very strong power. And one thing that is true about AI and is not true about other technologies or less true about other technologies and industries is that it's a really winner takes all kind of game. So the thing is with AI, as soon as you have a very small comparative advantage, that transforms into getting more customers. More customers leads to more data and more data leads to a better algorithm. But if you iterate this loop long enough, you end up with one leader in the space and literally nothing for the second best. And that's terrifying because it has economic implications. So instead of having, you know, multiple companies, some in Europe, some in the US, some in China, well, you end up with like one leading company that basically has the entire market share, all the jobs, you know, and even though customers have, are everywhere, the producer of this knowledge and where the money is going is super, 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 super concentrated. So that's an economic implication that tells you why governments care about it. The military implication are obvious, and we, we discussed a little bit about it, but also the social implication. And, and uh, you know, like we just discussed a minute ago that it has a potential to shape your behavior and your thoughts and your political opinions. So there is also an implication there. So you see, basically, AI has implication on like dimensions that are completely cornerstone of our, of our society and even the stability of our democracies. Uh, and then there are issues of privacy, you know, and, you know, I could go on and on and on and on to tell you that this is the reason why governments really, really, truly care about being the leader in this space to develop their own technological sovereignty. Does it also mean that the country that's uh, winning the AI race is also kind of the world dominating power like the US was for the past decades? I, I really do believe uh, that is going to be the way things are going to play out. Uh, whoever wins the AI race a, probably will be absolutely dominant in, in, in world trade, but also in other dimensions. So yes, it's a, it's a big, 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 uh, it's a big issue. 
Uh, and I, I completely agree. Now the big question, and, and you might you might ask, like who is you know like leading and and kind of getting into that. Uh, but definitely before we, we we discuss that, it's on everyone's mind in decision power. Companies want to be leading in AI so they're not disrupted. They're not the second best that get nothing, and governments want to make sure that they have this uh, this uh, you know leading agenda. Are companies and governments also competing in this race? Ooh, that's a good question. That's a good question, and uh, I would say that you, you started to see indeed uh, a division of labor and power between governments and uh, and of course people have in mind uh, like like China for instance, where there's been some kind of you know they they, they whipped the the, the, the the they, they cracked the whip a little bit on uh, on the tech industry that was starting to be a little bit too dominant. Uh, so that's something that is, of course, on, on everyone's mind. Um, but even if you look at the US and the, the rise of, uh, you know, Elon Musk, for instance, uh, who is, by the way, a leader in AI, but having like a lot of tension with US politics, you see uh, Elon Musk actually saying, you know, like with the, the, the purchase of Twitter, saying like, I want to install, reinstall free speech because these algorithms, you know, are a bit too biased on the, on the left wing side. I want to, you know, reinstall free speech. And you see that this is something very, very scary for governments. Uh, uh, Elon Musk received like life threats from different governments around the world. And you see that, you know, the, the, the power is definitely shifting away from uh, universities and government in general. We used to own the data, the talent and have the money switching to the big tech who have the talent, the money and the data. So you definitely see now uh, a competition between governments and, uh, and and tech companies. This is a fantastic question. Absolutely true. Yeah, I guess my question, though, is that we're saying about this being a sort of space race or there being one winner. But what does it mean to win this race? Like, at what point will a company or a country achieve X, Y or Z that makes them the winner of this? What? is that breaking point for us? I think it really depends on, on, on how you divide uh, the, the, the winning points. Because for a company, uh, it's traditionally market share. So see, that's a very easy uh, answer. But when you have, a, again, to go back to Elon Musk uh, agenda, you see that uh, it's someone who doesn't really care about market share, market value. It can tank his entire you know, like company valuation just by a tweet, and he knows that. Uh, he decided to, you know, like uh, not to take uh, SpaceX public uh, to actually avoid having shareholders, uh, you know, like basically telling him what to do. Uh, his mission is to, you know, uh, create a planet B. And that's not necessarily the thing that's going to make him like richer, but it's it's a, like an agenda that is like uh, driven by something else than money. So there it's not market share. It's actually building something for humanity. Uh, and uh, there, there was this fantastic uh, interview a couple of years ago, and, and Elon Musk was also discussing about that with other uh, AI experts saying like the biggest threat to humanity is actually development of AI. Because, and that's a singularity point you, you brought a bit earlier, um, which is there is a moment where like our intelligence grows linearly, our human intelligence. We are very slow at learning and we have limited capacity. We as humanity managed to be intelligent and create stuff that are like, you know, like look like uh, superhuman because we bring together, we divide labor and we connect. That's our collective intelligence that grows super linearly. But it could be that machines internally and by connecting with each other could grow at a pace that we cannot even phantom. So eventually it's, it we will become the child 
And not understanding what's going on, like we'll be like babies, not understanding what's going on around us is because we're not, we don't have this level of intelligence in terms of understanding what's going on. So in this case, a winning in AI might be actually, you know, making sure we have like boundaries and we don't go into an area that will destroy us. That could be winning as well. And for governments, I would say winning is, is making sure uh, that they, like the, the national companies also are, are relevant in this space and their own existence is not threatened. Yeah, so you brought up this point earlier about how kind of this special sauce to make the AI or to have power is having a combination of the talent, the data, and the money. And so given my apparently not so limited understanding of AI, which is news to me, I can still understand that this is a very difficult thing to do that requires a very complex set of skills. Um, so what sort of people and skills and resources do you need in order to do it? And then how are countries and tech companies able to attract them? Yeah, that, that's another really good question that's in, on everybody's mind. It's like, uh, you know, I want to be part of this race. Uh, can I? But the first thing that you need to develop an AI model is data. The second thing is data. And the third thing? Data. <laughs> <laughs> so let's establish that without good data, you don't do anything. A lot of these algorithms are open source. They are, you know, they've been used and reused and reused. If I will show you the uh, AI algorithm behind Amazon recommendations, Spotify, Netflix, they are actually the same variation of, you know, the same model. So essentially it's a recommender system and you just tweak a little bit the algorithm and the data and you can apply it to different fields. So the true innovation is not in the algorithm, it's the data that you have. If you have the best algorithm in the world, but you train it on bad data or biased data, you're going to have terrible predictions and recommendations. If you have like an average older technology trained on really good data, you're going to have fantastic predictions. So the data is really the most important thing. That's the first thing. Then the second thing is, of course, computer computing power uh, to train. And Tesla Autopilot, for instance, you need like 48 hours and uh, uh, 70,000 GPU, which is like, you know, an immense computing power. Basically, you also reach a, a moment where you, you have a capacity limit. It's something that to actually deploy this model, I mean, you just need an immense amount of resources. Now, to scale it, make it work, have a data acquisition strategy, you also need the talent. And this talent is not cheap. Um, good AI developer in the States now, not great. Two, three years of experience, but good salary, entry salary is $1 million. Uh, that's also why you see a lot of talent fleeing universities and, and going to these companies because it's, it's hard to match these type of salaries. Um, and that generates a lot of concentration uh, of, of activities. And basically, uh, the U.S. is really, really ahead in that respect, um, mainly because the U.S. was ahead in terms of Internet technologies that created a pool of VC money that could go and finance the next wave of AI. Wow. So... I chose the wrong degree. <laughs> I don't think I'll make that as an entry salary anytime soon, but that's okay. Um, so kind of circling back, you mentioned that the geography of AI is really concentrated in space. And I guess just in my own personal experience, I do see that I'm from the Silicon Valley. That's where I grew up. And it's definitely, it feels like any conversation you pass on the street will have 
AI or machine learning or cryptocurrency in it, one of those three. Um, so even though that this is such a virtual concept in a sense, and the world is taking a more digital turn, why is it concentrated in space? Well, um, the reason why AI is concentrated is the same reason why other complex technologies are concentrated. So it has to do with the fact that to create a new AI, you need actually to assemble a lot of different knowledge and capabilities. And uh, it's a bit like, you know, not, not every region is, has all this set of capabilities. Think about, uh, you know, you go to New York and you have like virtually every restaurant, every cuisine you want. But if you go to a small town, you don't have that much diversity. So it's a little bit the same. And these complex technologies, they really thrive in the large, large cities, mainly. And uh, it's not a surprise why in Europe, AI is concentrated in Paris, London, Munich. In the States, Silicon Valley, because it comes from you know, a lot of very related technologies, the Silicon Valley, the, the Bay Area, uh, generally, uh, New York, Boston, Austin, Texas are like you know, the key uh, development uh, places for AI. But it's very much a path-dependent process where the money is made there in, a, in an adjacent field, the, 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 the knowledge is there in an adjacent field, and that's why it's easier to gain a comparative advantage. But remember the feedback loop we talked about, which is in AI, it's a really snowball effect. A little comparative advantage transform compounds very quickly into a comparative advantage where the gap cannot be filled with other regions. So once, and that's also why governments are so eager to jump in early into AI, because they know that if they miss one step, then the next step is three steps. If they mix the, ne the next three steps, the next one is nine steps. So it's getting harder and harder to catch up uh, in these technologies that have this kind of network effect and self-enforcing feedback. And that creates a massive, massive polarization and concentration. But it also means that it generates uh, a really big regional inequality in, in terms of knowledge production, but also in terms of uh, economic output. Absolutely. But to be honest, um, that's always been kind of the case. It's just the magnitude is growing faster and faster when technologies become more complex. If technologies are not complex, eh, they can be developed more or less anywhere, like kind of randomly. But as soon as you kind of bring together components, then you have this concentration effect that appears. And um, you're absolutely right. It does have an impact uh, on inequality. But you, you said uh, that you were from the Silicon Valley and, and you saw probably, you know, like the evolution also of San Francisco, where basically in terms of housing, there is no evolution, but there is more and more demand. So if the, you know, elasticity of housing is, is you know, of, uh, of, of supply is very low, but demand goes up, then you end up with, on the one hand, like, you know, billionaires that live next to homeless people because... Demand goes up, supply of housing does not. So that's a typical urban issue that is also created by these new technologies because it you know, creates these huge gaps uh, between, uh, between people. So, oh yeah, the, the implications of inequality are massive, massive, massive. And uh, it's not far-fetched to say that there is a very strong link between uh, very fast technological growth over the past two decades and uh, the rise of populism. There, there are obvious links to be made between the two issues. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things I actually heard a professor of mine say in my bachelor's was uh, the election of Donald Trump came exactly 10 years after the release of the first iPhone, mm -hmm. which I kind of had never made that connection. I was like, wow, that's kind of terrifying to think about in that way. Um, so going back to kind of what you were saying, it seems that throughout this conversation, we've established that AI has the potential to create very few winners 
and many, many, many losers. Is that a correct assumption? Yeah. And even though I don't want to depict a negative picture because that is true, um, but losers on the production side, um, you know, like for instance, uh, in, uh, in healthcare, is absolutely amazing because if you have like sensor and personalized uh, medical devices, uh, you can uh, early on, det det you know, detect, detect like early signal of like having a heart attack or stuff like that and literally save life. Uh, the same for like uh, tumor detections and imaging. Uh, AI is, is performing better than any human at that. And that literally means saving lives, saving people's time, uh, making jobs safer, avoiding the routine tasks that, that nobody that are very alienating, you know. So there is a, a net benefit for users, but when we talk about the AI, you know, winner takes all world, it's on the production side. So the companies that produce this AI, there will be very few and they will have a huge market share and it will disrupt a lot of adjacent industries. And it's been true forever uh, with every new tool, you know, when we invented the shovel, you know, we didn't have to dig with our hand, that was pretty, pretty nice. And then when we start to have like mechanization agriculture, you didn't have to wreck your back and you could actually spend time studying and do something else. So all these things actually in the long run, they're great. Technology is the factor that bends, you know, human, human development the most by far. So all of that, you know, even though it's really fair to discuss the negative side and to anticipate, it should also, we should not throw, you know, the baby with the bathwater. We should also think about all the great things that AI can achieve. Yeah, that would make sense. But I guess for me, something that I also am hearing as well is that, yeah, we'll have this ability to understand like MRI scans better than we ever have been before. But what happens to the people that were trained to scan MRIs? What happens to their jobs? Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's a big question. It's also on everyone's mind. Uh, and that's the big question of a, yeah, once an AI uh, can perform a human task better than a human, literally this human is not needed for this task. And that in the long run is not a bad thing. Uh, but again, that's something that we've seen in technology before. Uh, every time there's been a technological revolution, um, you know, machines have been taking over uh, on, on human job. And as a society, we have to do two things. One, we literally have to accelerate that. We cannot fight automation and all of that. We cannot do that. If we fight that, we are fighting our potential to keep growing, using less resources, being cleaner and have like more time to do, you know, things that humans like to do. So we should not fight it. We should accelerate it. But we have to understand that the generation that is impacted uh, has to be compensated financially, retraining, we can find different instruments. But first, we have to agree on the principle that it's not fair that I have a, a skill that is complementary to AI, and therefore I'm going to ride this wave, while the same wave is going to crush someone else. Even though on average, we all gain, we can absolutely agree that a part of the population will lose absolutely 100%. So we just have to compensate. If we don't do that, it's going to bite us back because you're going to have a rise of populism and it's going to be very easy to tell a story of like migration is bad, technology is bad, globalization is bad. I'm the hero that's going to protect you from that. Vote for me. And, you know, I'm going to keep your job in the US, in Netherlands, elsewhere and away from the machines and away from the EU and away from Washington, all of that. So we have to address that absolutely imperative, which is, yes, technology is good on average, but 
whoever loses needs to be compensated. Yeah, so what I'm hearing is that there is this incredible potential for a concentration, but what will ultimately de determine whether or not that has this sort of horrible aggregate effect is our ability to govern it, right? And to create policy solutions that make sure this wealth and this winning is redistributed throughout the population, right? So I guess based on this conversation, that seems like a really key factor of making sure this develops in a useful way. But alternatively, going back to this earlier part of our conversation, you're also kind of mentioning that maybe this has the potential to create these echo chambers as well. So aren't these two concepts really at odds with each other? So actually, in my, my answer, I want to talk about echo chambers as well. I'm going back to this point of the conversation because uh, that's where we need policy regulation. Uh, we don't need too much regulation all the way to, to kill innovation. Okay, that's uh, there is a fine line, but we need regulation and policy responses. So for instance, if we realize that there is incentive for companies to have their algorithms uh, making you stay on the website by you know feeding you what you want and creating echo chambers, then one policy regulation easy is to introduce some more randomness by regulation in the algorithms. You know, that's very simple. You need a level of randomness to avoid this polarization. See, that could be a policy response, a regulation response. The same when it comes to uh, AI. I wouldn't be uh, afraid to have like some form of special taxation for AI that will finance programs of like reskilling, relearning, or even like pension for people that literally gets like obviously completely automated, you know. That, so these are two implications, regulation on terms of like tweaking the algorithm from a regulation perspective, from a societal perspective. And the other one is a, if there is so much money on one end being, you know, built, uh, I, I don't think it would be completely stupid to have specific form of taxation to uh, transfer it to the part that, you know, the kind of suffer from that. What seems challenging to me in regulating AI uh, is that it is on such a global level as is with internet so regulating it would kind of ask for a more of a global level policy which is very hard to achieve i think uh, yes yes and no yes and no uh, big yes in a sense that yeah ai is global ai is actually uh, by by model you have like uh, the us ai which uh, is also the ai you use i see you have um, an apple computer uh, you have like iphones i saw earlier uh, so all the AI facial recognition technology that you use are all like US technologies. Uh, I'm pretty sure if we look at the material we use that doesn't come from Europe, um, you probably we're using the mic does the mic does. OK, <laughs> so we're still good at creating the, the physical products. Uh, but on the digital space, mostly what we use today is completely US based. Uh, you're probably logging in on Twitter, on Facebook, um, you're watching YouTube, Netflix. I mean, I could go on and on Amazon. I could go on and on and I will challenge you to find one. European AI leader? Um, as we've discussed, I know limited <laughs> <laughs> things about AI as a whole. But uh, yeah, let me get back to you on that one. <laughs> it's it's going to be challenging. I'll, I'll tell you I'll tell you that. And, and, and for good reason, because uh, AI is mainly in the Western world in the US. And we in Europe used uh, AI technology from the US. And then the big, huge uh, contender, which might be on par with the US now, is China. Because China has a lot of data and the data is being used in many, many ways. Uh, so it's like a uh, large amount of data, but, you know, use a lot of use cases for this, uh, for this AI so they can train also fantastic algorithms. So you basically have the US 
and, and China uh, competing on the AI space. And um, so, yes, global, and yes, we need coordination on that. But remember that China decided to ban a lot of internet com companies, US companies, in the early 2000s. So it's easy. The users are in China, you ban access to these companies, and then you can do whatever you want within this uh, within country. So countries have much more power than we think because users are still here. So if we ban uh, and we know where your IP come from, and sure, you can go around with VPN and stuff, but we know also how to block that now. So we can throw hurdles as much as we want. Um, that also means this, think about data has, as, as a natural resource. If your data is a natural resource and you're Dutch, there's nothing that prevents the Dutch government to put some specific regulation and say, the same as some toys might not be safe, you can also say this type of technology is not safe and have regulation at this level. Completely fine to do that. Um, so there is also a way to regulate the use of, uh, of AI in countries. And I suspect that it will grow uh, bigger and bigger, this type of regulation in the future. So this conversation has definitely, at the very least, tripled my existing knowledge about AI. And if nothing else, I at least learned that perhaps it's not as intelligent as we would like to think, and we are not nearing a Terminator future soon. So I feel a little bit relieved about that. Um, so just to finish off this episode, we like to ask all of our guests one concluding question because at the end of the day, this podcast is really a mission for us to figure out what is geography. So in your eyes, what does geography mean to you? I want to say geography means a lot to me because without geography, there are a lot of topics going from technology, from like economic systems that I cannot understand. So geography, I see it basically as a key for me to understand the world. Well, hopefully one day we'll also understand how to use this key. <laughs> <laughs> or at least maybe they'll build a robot to do it better than us. <laughs> This podcast was made possible by Utrecht University. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>